Romans today. Um, actually, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, I hope you have a copy of Scripture with you. And if you don't, please grab one of those black hardback Bibles in front of you to follow along with us this morning. And if you don't have a copy of Scripture to call your very own, I, I would invite you to take one of those black hardback Bibles home with you as our gift to you this morning. Um, since Easter uh, Sunday morning, a couple of weeks ago, we have been exploring the implications of the resurrection, the implications of Easter. We've been, we've been ex- examining the, the various natures of the resurrection. On Easter Sunday, we looked at the Christ-like nature of the resurrection and, and, and how the resurrection proclaims the fact that that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the anointed one of God, his own son, come in the flesh. Last week, we, we looked at the essential nature of the resurrection and how without the resurrection, we don't have a faith. That it is by the resurrection that, that our faith, pardon the pun, lives or dies. And today, we're going to be looking at the sin-killing nature of the resurrection, how the nature is by the resurrection that we are able to kill the sin in our own lives. And so we are in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be starting with verse 10. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Romans 8, starting with verse 10. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Steadfast God, my prayer this morning is that you would teach us your way and your truth. That you would, that you would root us in you alone. That you would help us to grow in grace and love that we may fulfill our role and our work as co-heirs of Christ. And so, God, as we open your word to to study it, as we open it to to learn your way and truth, as we open it to, to root ourselves in you and to claim our inheritance as your children, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, our God, Father and our King. Amen. Be seated. 
pick this up because if I leave it down there, it's going to bother me. There is a, a really famous quote that you may be familiar with. You may not be familiar with, um, but I'm sure you've, you've probably heard it. If nothing else, you, if you're connected with me on Facebook, you've probably seen me quote it or post it at one point or another. And it's this quote from uh, the uh, 17th century English clergyman John Owen. And the quote goes like this, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. This comes from Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. And, and the, the point, right, is unless we are actively engaged in the process of trying to root the sin out in our lives, then sin is fighting back. I've been, for a while now, I've been on a, not just a World War II kick, but in particular, I've been on a, on a Guadalcanal kick. And one of the things that's so clear as you study that battle in particular, you know, it's the first land battle in the Pacific. Less than a year after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the first time the, the Allies, and in particular the Americans, have gone on the offensive in the Pacific. In case you, you don't remember the details of that, I, I don't know why, you don't just carry those around in your head. But in case you don't, what's, what's happening is the Japanese have come down and they are moving ever closer to Australia. Because they want to either strangle Australia off or, or, or if they can, conquer Australia for the resources. And so they're building a, a, an air base, a field, on the island of Guadalcanal in the southern Solomon Islands from which they are going to be able to launch attacks against much of the east coast of Australia, which is where most of the population of Australia is located. And so the Americans see this field, and they know they have need to go on the offensive, and so they, they decide they're going to seize the airfield on Guadalcanal. It wasn't the original plan, but the plan changes at the last minute, and Henry, are Marines adaptable? Are Marines adaptable? Marines are adaptable. So at the last minute, the Marines are told, I know we were sending you here, but we're sending you here instead. And so they land at Guadalcanal. And it is a muddy, gross slugfest for six months. And it's this constant back and forth. And if at any given day the Marines stop pushing out from the perimeter around Lunga Point, from around what comes to be known as Henderson Field, they lose ground to the Japanese. And if the Japanese ever stop trying to push in and push the Marines back, they lose ground against the Marines. It's this, it's this constant back-and-forth war of attrition until finally the, the Japanese just withdraw because they can't sustain their losses anymore. Okay, what's the point? Well, the point is this. That's what our battle against sin is like. If we're not in a constant offensive stance against sin, if we just simply enter into a defensive stance against sin, sin is going to encroach in and conquer more and more and more of our life. I understand that defense wins football championships. 
but it doesn't win the war against sin. Only offense wins the war against sin. Now, in John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, you know, he's talking about this need to grow in Christ-likeness or holiness or sanctification, all words that mean the same thing, to grow every day to be more and more like Christ. Because if Christ had no sin, if we grow in Christ-likeness, if we grow more like him, then what? We have less sin, right? And, And Owen points out in the mortification of sin, points out in the book, how we cannot do this on our own. We, we cannot mortify sin. We cannot kill sin under our own power. That's the whole point, actually, of this book, is that we need God. We need the Holy Spirit in order to win the war against sin. And right here in Romans chapter 8, probably one of the most important chapters of Scripture. In these few verses, Paul is showing us, showing first the church in Rome, but but now here, all these years later, showing us the same thing. That That we have to fight the war against sin, but that we are incapable of winning the war against sin under our own power, but that luckily the same Spirit that gave Jesus new life and his resurrection is also going to give us new life as well. That we have the most powerful ally ever in our war against sin. God himself. We look at verse 10. Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Now, that's a a conditional statement, right? If Christ is in you. And it would be easy for us to read, if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. But that's not really what what Paul's saying here. He says that, that your body is dead because of sin is this parenthetical that's in the middle It's this clause that's in the middle of the sentence. What really would be maybe clearer for us is that he said, your body is dead because of sin, but if Christ is in you, the Spirit gives life. As you look, I don't know know how you have it in in the translation that you're looking at, but but if you look at, at verse 10 in the CSB, you even see, right, that's a, a clause. The, the body is dead because of sin. It's a clause that's set off with commas, right? It's this clause in the middle of the sentence that can be confusing if we aren't thinking clearly when we read it. If we just read very quickly over it, we can misunderstand what is actually being said here. And what Paul is reminding us is Paul is reminding us that we are dead in our sin. Our flesh is dead in our sin. That without the Spirit, without Christ, we're dead. We're dead. Why are we dead? And we're going to see a little bit later, Paul's going to remind us of this, but let's just, let's just say it here again. We're dead because of sin. 
because sin kills. That's what sin does. Just as the Word gives life, sin kills. And so, and so when we don't have Christ, when we aren't in Christ, when we are without the Spirit, the inevitable consequence of the sin in our life is death. We talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago, I think you'll remember, about how that death is, is a both and, right? I mean, the most important death that we're talking about is a spiritual death. But that often sin leads to a, a physical death as well, doesn't it? Read another article this week about young people who are dying in these deaths of despair. Drug addiction, drug overdoses, alcohol poisoning, suicide. They're starting to include more and more. They're starting to include at least certain kinds of car accidents and deaths of despair. And what leads to that, right? It's a, it's a, there's a spiritual death that's going on, right? And in a lot of those cases, there's also a physical death that's happening because of the sin that's working out in somebody's life. It's a both and. The, there are, you, you look at the numbers, it's, it's depressing. I, I would actually encourage you not to look at the numbers, but we probably need to not turn away the, the number of young people who are just totally checked out of society. I, I'm talking about young people, young men in particular, who are just totally removed from society. They're not working. They're not going out. They're not doing anything. They're totally and utterly removed from society. It's happening here now. It's happened around the world for years. In fact, the, the, the Japanese, as the Japanese often do, have a specific word for these young men that I'm not even going to try to pronounce because um, I don't speak Japanese. But it's these young men who just are totally checked out. They have no interest at all in existing in society. And we see these numbers, and it's, and it's going up and up. And those of you who work with young people probably are seeing it in your classrooms. Those of you who have young people at home, I, I hope you're not seeing it in the ones that are in your home, but you probably are seeing it in some of the people that they know. Just totally and utterly checked out. Because they have no, they have no life. They have no hope. They are spiritually dead. In some really serious and profound ways. One of the things that we see is some of these spiritually dead people are so spiritually dead and in so much spiritual pain that they end up lashing out and creating events of mass violence. Young men and increasingly young women. And see, the, the, the spirit of our age, the spirit of our culture says, what? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get serious. Stop sitting at home playing video games all the time. You do you. You figure it out. You white knuckle down. You get a job. You do this. You do that. 
brothers and sisters, we're not dealing with a problem that can be solved by white-knuckling it. We're not dealing with a problem that can be overcome by just telling people, do better. Because when we tell people to just do better when they are dead, what we're telling them to do is, hey, you see that dead horse over there? Why don't you keep beating it until it gets up and moves? doesn't work, does it? There's a reason we have the expression. It's like beating a dead horse. Because dead horses don't get up and move. One of the grand ironies of history is Nietzsche, the German philosopher who cared about, who preached a, a philosophy of caring about nothing and caring about no one. The ubermensch, the overman. The overman will prove that he's an overman by not caring about anyway. Do you know what finally led to Nietzsche's insanity? He was walking down the road and he saw a man beating a horse to death that had been overworked and had collapsed in the road threw himself over the horse to absorb the blows himself. Because even a man like Nietzsche, when confronted with the cruelty of the world, understood that there was something else. Sin kills us because sin kills, and that's what it does. But if we move into verse 11, what we see, right, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the spirit. And so now we've gone back and we've connected back to that that middle phrase that was in verse 10. And what we see is that we become alive not through our own work, but through the work of the Holy Spirit that we become alive not because we're good and we do the right thing and we just get it done. We become alive because the Spirit gives us life. But here's the thing. It's not just any Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that gave life to Jesus in a borrowed tomb one Saturday night. It's not just any spirit. It's the same spirit that gave life to Christ. It's the same spirit that proved the essential nature of the resurrection to our faith. It's the same spirit that proved that Christ was who Christ claimed to be. It's the same spirit that gives us life and that gives us the power to win in this war against sin I don't know about you I hope that this gives you great joy in knowing that it's not on you because I don't know about you But I know for myself that if it's on me, I'm dead. Figuratively, literally, metaphorically, spiritually. If it's up to me, if it's up to my work, 
I can't get out of bed in the morning without sinning. I can't brush my teeth without Christ. And so the fact that I don't have to do it, the fact that it's not on me, brothers and sisters, if that does not make you smile from ear to ear, honestly, I don't think you understand it. See, prior to new life, we read in verse 12, he says, he says in verse 12, right, we're not under any obligation to the flesh. Because prior to new life, there is an obligation to the flesh. There, there's, this, there's this inescapable reality that we cannot get away from of our flesh. I do not care how good you think you are. You cannot do it. Because of our nature, our sin nature as human beings. There's an obligation. We, we talked when we read, went through Galatians, remember? We, we talked, we used the language of slavery. That's the kind of obligation that Paul is talking about here. There's a, we're, we're chained to this obligation, this, this compulsion this inescapable reality of sin. But, but, if we have come to new life through God's Spirit, if we have come to new life through and by Christ, those chains that, that bind us that obligation, those, those chains that keep us enslaved are broken. They're gone. They're not there anymore. You, you, can, you can get up from the, from the seat. You, you all remember, what is it? Is it Ben-Hur, right? They're in the galleys. They're all, they're all chained in. The chain's gone. You can get up from the seat. You don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to row that boat anymore. You can let your hands heal. You don't have to do the work. You're not under that obligation anymore. You're not enslaved to that anymore if you were in Christ. And then we get to verse 13. And verse 13 has the most important phrase that we're going to look at this morning. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. We all know that expression, live by the sword, die by the sword, right? We've heard that a million times. I offer a revision. Live by the flesh, die by the flesh. Live by the sin, die by the sin. It's inevitable. You get sin kills. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. And now we get to the most important phrase. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me read these words. But if, 
by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That would be really easy for us to read that and feel as if the obligation is on us, right? If you put to death, but if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But that's not what Paul writes. Paul doesn't write, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul writes, if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Brothers and sisters, by the Spirit. I don't know if any of you have ever wrestled or known someone who wrestled with addiction. I know that we have some folks in recovery. I know that we have our meeting that that Joey runs on Tuesday and Thursday. I don't know if any of you have ever dealt with it yourself. But but one of the, the keys in recovery to addiction is to acknowledge that you don't have power over your addiction. You, you, you have to surrender. Not to the addiction, but you have to, sur- have to surrender to the mindset that you can control it, that you have power over it. We, we have to surrender the idea. We have to give up the idea that we can have power over our own sins. We have to give that up. Because, brothers and sisters, until you give that up, you are still holding on. You are still trying to do the work of Christ. I don't know why I do not disturb the Lord. And as long as we try and do the work of Christ, we're going to fail. Because nobody can do the work of Christ except Christ. And so we try and hold on to it. And we try and do it. And until we understand that we can't and that it is only by the Spirit, then we are doomed to failure. If you have been trying to kill sin in your life for a week, for a year, for 40 years. Stop. You stop trying to kill it. And recognize that it is only by the Spirit that it can be done. Now, this is not an invitation to sin, right? What it's an invitation to is it's an invitation to surrender finally, once and for all, to the Spirit, to God, and to let Him do the work that he's already done. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those, verse 14, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Continuing in to 15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. When the Spirit comes to us, he doesn't give us a 
a spirit of slavery, right? He's breaking the chains of slavery. He's giving us the spirit of adoption. Paul continues. See, the spirit, when he works in us, he doesn't enslave us. He adopts us. Oftentimes, in our culture, when we think of adoption, we write, we think of adopting a, a small child. But in the time period that Paul was writing, the adoption of adults was just as, if not more common, than the adoption of a child. Because if you adopt a child, they may not survive to adulthood. But if you adopt an adult, they're already an adult, right? So Augustus is adopted by Julius Caesar. You see this over and over again in Rome and aristocracy and among the emperors. They don't have a child, or perhaps they even do have a child, but they don't want their child to be the emperor, so they adopt someone else to make them the heir. That's what adoption was about. It was about creating an heir so that the, the, the legacy could continue. Julius Caesar adopts Augustus because he wants someone to be his heir. And so when Paul talks about adoption, and when he talks about adopting us, I don't want us to think of ourselves necessarily as a, as a small baby come home from the hospital adopted. I want us to think of us as, as, as grown adult human beings who God has adopted into his family so that he can have heirs. I mean, that's what Paul says here, right? That he's adopted us so that we can be heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. See, adoption immediately inferred all of the rights that one had as a natural biological child. All of the rights and the responsibilities that went along with that. But what Paul points to here, the end, back end of verse 15, when we say that that we receive the spirit of adoption by which, by the spirit, by which we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, you have probably heard and read lots of things about that word, Abba, and I'm not going to get into it. Let it suffice it to say it is a term of intimacy. And what we have here is Paul telling us that one of the things that we get by being adopted through the Spirit, by the Spirit. Yes, we get life, but we also get intimacy with the Father. And that in that intimacy, in that intimacy, we are, we are heirs, we are co-heirs with Christ. And indeed, we are heirs even in Christ's suffering. So I want you to hear me. This is not a, this is not a, a prosperity gospel lesson here that if God comes along and loves us he, we get all the good stuff we do we get intimacy with him we get set free and then we also get the suffering of Christ and we get to don't have to, we get to participate in Christ's suffering brothers and sisters, it is a blessing to be able to participate in the suffering of it's not a burden. It's a blessing. 
because it is by and through that suffering that we grow in Christ-likeness, that we are glorified with Christ. Right there at the end of verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. So do you want to conquer the sin in your life? Do, do, do you want this kind of freedom? You are never going to get it by relying on yourself. You're never going to get it by, by, by just telling yourself over and over and over again, do better, do better, do better, do better. You are only going to achieve that kind of liberation, that kind of freedom, that kind of salvation. When you stop, you surrender to the Spirit. And the Spirit adopts you, grows in you. of the Spirit that breathes life into Christ. All of this is because of the resurrection. Because he lives, I can live. And you can live. And we can live together. One of the great joys in being a pastor is on occasion I get a Sunday where I get to pick all three pieces of music if you haven't liked it this Sunday, come, because I picked it. So we're going to end today with Because He Lives. One of my favorite hymns in our hymnal. I think it's Sissy's favorite, too. And I'm going to tell you this. We've done this before. We're just going to plan ahead. When we get to the last singing of the chorus, we're just going to sing the chorus one more time. That last chorus.